You're listening to Consolidate That. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Consolidate That. I'm Ryan Leach. I've got a really special episode for you this week. Just recently, we had a fantastic webinar with some amazing guests, and we hope that you guys will enjoy this episode. Make sure to subscribe and like the podcast to be able to hear our newest episodes as well. Thanks a lot. All right. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us today at this webinar. The topic that we've outlined for this is putting people first, how burnout prevention in veterinary organizations translates into profits. We have exciting guests today, and it's a pleasure to introduce you guys to them. First guest is Bob Lester, and the second one is Tom Jenkins. So Dr. Bob Lester is the Chief Medical Officer at Wellhaven Pet Health, a family of companion animal practice that believes in caring for the caregivers so that they can care for others. Bob, why don't you give us a little bit of your background and uh, introduce yourself? Great. Thank you, Ivan. Thank you for the opportunity. So my background, I fear, is, is not particularly exciting. Like a lot of colleagues, I wanted to be a veterinarian from early, early ages. Read all the James Harriet books, and, and that was my guiding light. And as a result, I had a small town mixed animal practice for a number of years. In fact, it was called Sweet Home Veterinary Clinic. And it was a sweet little home in the foothills of the Willamette National Forest and would likely still be there today had not a couple of classmates come to me with a crazy idea to start companion animal practices inside a pet store. And at first I pushed back, but uh, eventually uh, believed in the vision and came on board. And that was the turned into Banfield. That was back before there was a Banfield. Did that for a number of years, left there to go into academia, spent five of the most professionally rewarding years of my life launching the new veterinary school at Lincoln Memorial University, really dramatically different kind of school with a distributed clinical year where the students get thousands of hands-on, many primary care cases. In the preclinical year, there's a real focus on clinical skills as well as professional skills, communication training, leadership training, practice management training. It's a remarkable institution. I left there about three years ago to help launch uh, Wellhaven Pet Health. So as you mentioned, we're a relatively new group. We both buy practices as well as build practices. We have a number of de novos. And three years in, so far so good. Uh, as you indicated in the opening, our job is to take care of the people on our teams. If we take care of them, they'll take care of pets. And then the profits are a consequence. Thank you, Bob. And uh, we'll introduce the second guest. So right out of uh, London, UK, my friend, Dr. Tom Jenkins. He's the co-founder and the CEO of Pets App, a mobile-first veterinary telemedicine platform enabling veterinary clinics. Tom, thanks for joining us. And uh, can you please share with your background and uh, your experience operating clinics in Asia and Europe? Sure. Hi, Ivan. Hi, Bob. And hi, everyone. So I'm a vet by training, like Bob. Always wanted to be a vet, can't remember ever wanting to be anything else. Got some commercial exposure in my teens when I swapped my paper route for web development. So went to vet school with this sort of commercial interest. Graduated from uh, Cambridge in 2012, so not so long ago. And through a bit of Googling, found a platform of four clinics in Beijing and decided to start my career out there and, and join them and help grow that business across mainland China, into Shanghai, Guangzhou, Suzhou, and Nanjing, Shenzhen, into Hong Kong and Singapore. I was chief operating officer of that business. I was out there for about four and a half years, and then came back to the UK, 
where I was chief operating officer of a group of 30 clinics called Village Vet, which is now part of the Linnaeus Group, which is part of Mars Pet Care, and founded PetSat two and a half years ago. Sat on a uh, sit on a couple of different boards, both within veterinary and outside of veterinary. So um, pretty broad business interests. Thanks, Tom. And just a couple of words about me. So I'm Zach, vet by trade, trained in Ukraine originally, then moved to North America. And as every doctor who's an immigrant, started by working in the vet clinic as a janitor, and then followed by doing uh, another vet degree in, in Canada, graduated from Atlantic Vet College, worked for about 12 years as the ER vet and did a lot of relief work. Then build a platform that we coined as a workflow optimization system. It was SmartFlow, which then uh, we sold to IDEX, where it took over the software division for all nine months. After that, left pursuing my passion in finding the ways to optimize workflow for the veterinarians and to research a little more about the topic of burnout and how to preserve the experience of the veterinarians going through acquisition during consolidation. So thank you guys for joining me. The topic is very dear and interesting to me. It was a part of my dissertation research about the burnout, but I wanted to take an angle to it from sort of the business aspect, not only moral responsibility, and to see whether burnout has any influence on the business in the veterinary domain. For all the listeners and visitors, please post questions in the chat box if you can. We have an amazing team on the background that is going to be uh, providing those. We will dedicate quite a lot of time in the end to the answers. There's enough time for Q&A. And I'll open up with uh, just a recent report from Baraki Consulting that around 1,000 hospitals were acquired in North America in 2020, which is 50% increase from the last year. And uh, just to outline the sort of relation to of burnout to things that happen with the practice while it's consolidated, I'd like to show a slide with just kind of outlining the classic triggers of burnout that have been out there since the, I think, late 70s or early 80s by uh, Maslach. So these are the six classic triggers. And as we're thinking about the practices that go through stress while being acquired, some of them could be emphasized more than others. So when we were talking about the lack of control. It's quite typical for the owner to benefit from the acquisition financially, but then they lose the control of their practice and the change of ownership. Another classic trigger of burnout is conflict of values. And if the organization that is acquiring the practices or the particular practice core values don't align with the people that work in this practice, then that's another trigger possible. Work overload is one of the most uh, recognized triggers of burnout. And sometimes people think that that's the only one, but there are six sort of these classic ones. Insufficient reward is another one in the workplace. And there could be a lack of appreciation. People are taken for granted, or there were some promises that were given by the previous owner. And when the ownership changes, they're not maintained. Unfairness is another classic trigger. And uh, the insufficient reward is sometimes boosted by additional tasks that the organization can pose on the employee employees and a breakdown of the community, which is lack of feedback loops. You're not going directly back to the owner that used to be in the practice. The managing organization is at the top and it's hard to create the report with the parent organization. So 
those are the classic ones. And uh, I wanted to sort of mention a couple other stats that we know about the burnout and the effects on the business. One of the things that is known and been reported at MIT, that 33% of employees in the acquired companies leave within the first year. Another stat that we collected from the DVM Insider, they wanted to calculate the impact when people are leaving or veterinarian is leaving the hospital. What is the financial impact? So they estimate about $16,000. We had a chat when we were preparing for this and Bob mentioned it's probably much higher than that if you think about the recruiting costs and things like that. Also in AHA in 2016 report, the turnover was reported in, and we usually calculated at 20% or 21% being normal in our domain, where it's only 11 in other industries. And uh, and other facts from uh, McKenzie is about 61% of acquisitions uh, in different domains. Again, it's not veterinary, but 61% did not earn a sufficient return on company's investment for the acquisition. So with all of those facts, I just wanted to open up with probably asking Bob, with your experience in independent and corporate environments, do you think that, so So you wrote an article that I really liked about the missionaries and mercenaries. Can you tell us more about what you wrote about and uh, sort of what the articles were? Yeah, happy to. Thank you, Ivan. So I, I wrote a column for today's veterinary business a couple of months ago titled Mercenaries and Missionaries. And The thesis is, as most of us know, consolidation isn't unique to veterinary medicine. Consolidation takes place throughout the economy in any fragmented, successful industry that will benefit from investment. And as we think about the two different categories, as I put them, the mercenaries, they rely on the financial thesis, which is really clear when you look at our industry. Pet numbers are up, pet lifespans are up, pet spending is up, euthanasias are down, shelters are emptying. There's a whole generation of of veterinarians that look a lot like me that are looking for exit and retirement. So from a financial point of view, what a a nice, profitable, fragmented, recession-resistant industry where the investment community can park money with little risk and typically short-term. So they're looking to buy a practice at 1x, get a whole group of practices in a relatively short time frame, and sell them for 2x. So Intellectually, financially, it makes great sense. However, it's short time frame, and during that time frame, it makes little financial sense to reinvest into the practices that are joining their group. I contrast that with what I term the missionaries. Missionaries, on the other hand, typically have veterinary professionals that understand the investment thesis, but they also understand the heart of the profession, that it's a relationship business, it's about people and the the good we do for society and pet parents, and and take a longer-term view, understanding that we've got to reinvest in people, we've got to look at the long-term horizon, that it's not all about the investment thesis, it's more about purpose, it's more about passion, and if you focus on those things, then the profits will follow. Excellent. Thank you, Bob. And then in your experience, because you've been, again, you've been observing two sides of that, the consolidator and the non-consolidator. What do you think may happen if we pay not enough attention to well-being of the employees that are going through this? Is there, is there an impact that you see on the financial side of things? Yeah, without a doubt there is. If, if we don't take care of the people, somebody else will. We're so fortunate in in our industry that The rate-limiting step is not lack of consumers. Pet parents are beating down the doors to come see us. The rate-limiting step is attracting, selecting, developing, retaining great veterinary professionals, doctors, veterinary nurses, and others. 
So we have to pay attention to them. It, it's it's the heart of our of our business. And perhaps naively, as I look at consolidation, consolidation is pretty predictable. At, at some point, and and Tom's probably already seen it in the UK. In the US, we've got 50 plus consolidators. 10 years from now, that'll be five or six. Naively, I want to believe that those of us that are mercenaries, we can prove to the investment community that by focusing on our people first, then the rest will follow, as opposed to if the thesis is entirely financial, then it's easy to forget that this is a relationship business, this is a people business, that we do far more than focus on a PL. Profits aren't a bad word. We need that, that, that we have to have that to, to be sustainable, to reinvest, to take care of our people. But people come first. Yeah. And, and I think it goes along with the, with the understanding that serving the customer is very important. But if you don't have people motivated that are serving the customer, then there's lack of motivation to generate that revenue. And uh, it's interesting how the age and the character of both customers and the veterinarians is changing now, where most veterinarians are right now represented, or a lot of them, by millennials that have a completely different mindset and the way they perceive the world and the way they are known to be narcissistic and and, and with a feeling of entitlement. But at the same time, there's a different management strategy towards those people. They need to be rewarded constantly. And it's not necessarily monetary reward. It's just recognition of goal achievement and, and basically motivate them in other ways. And there's, as you said, there's no lack of demand. There's definitely enough, you know, the humanization of the pets is advancing. There are no pets in the shelters anymore. And people are observing because of COVID more at home. They are seeing more symptoms and they're, you know, they're visiting more veterinarians. So, so the demand is growing and the supply is coming shorter. Tom, with your experience in Asia and Europe, we had you as a guest in another podcast. It was fascinating to hear your story, how you just Googled where to go in Asia and uh, to start to become a CEO of uh, Consolidation. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, because uh, your role was there, as, as I know, it was really assessing the culture and the integration pre and post sort of acquisition of the cultural aspect. How much did you see the connection of that to the profits post acquisition and the recovery of the synergies that were expected from those acquisitions? Yeah, so I think there's a common issue with any acquisition of this idea of the bait and switch. And there can be a deal team that comes in, right? And then there's an operational team that comes in after the deal's been done and takes over. And, and so people are dealing with different people. And so what we try to do, both companies where I've been involved in this stuff, was have the operational team involved early in terms of a non-financial due diligence process to get a sense for is there um, cultural alignment here? And, you know, I think it's worthwhile thing to do. I would say it's hard to do. So mixed levels of success. One key ingredient in being able to do it is knowing your own culture. And not everyone does. I think it's something that's very hard to do. So starting by interrogating your own culture and doing the, the sort of non-financial due diligence process on your own business is what's going to unlock those rewards later because sometimes you'll find these gaps in in what you say and and what you do in reality and and confronting those early is the key to success i think that makes complete sense and so it's not only discovering your culture and articulating it well it's also following what you say 
And in your experience, because you've seen it, the assessment, not only your own, but then understanding the culture in the acquired practice. You know, I, I recently heard an interesting definition of the culture because I previously thought that it's, you know, mission, vision, and your core values. But also, I was just actually doing an MA course where they articulated and they said that culture is not only that, it's just how do you do stuff here? Like what is acceptable? What's not acceptable? It's not only those core values that are super important because they're brief, articulated, but if you merge, you know, probably a hundred core values across different companies, there's a lot of things that repeat as words, but in reality, how do you do stuff? What is good? What does good look like for you and for us? So those are all important aspects of the cultural assessment. In your experience, is it more important to do pre or post acquisition, this assessment? What is the best way to, to approach this? Both. And that's an unsurprising answer. And because if you don't do it pre, if you don't at least attempt to do it, pre then you're stuck and you might have made an acquisition that, that you wish you hadn't i would broaden that definition of culture i would agree with you but what it really is is a predictor of how people are going to behave right when you're not there is and that's that's super important so uh, one way to arrive at your culture is to look at your stakeholders and do a stakeholder mapping exercise and your stakeholders are the investors your customers the pet owner but also your patients and your team, right? That would be one set of stakeholders, I think. And if I miss one, Bob, you can you can shout. But then to arrive at your strategy, which will feed into culture, you want to rank that stakeholder prioritization. And the easiest thing in the world is to sit here and say, hey, they're all important. Yeah, they are all important. And strategy is making hard decisions. And it's like, how do you allocate your limited resource? So who's going to have priority here? Right. So what you want to do is get a sense of that for yourself. And then pre-acquisition, you can do things to see, right, how does this team order its stakeholder prioritization? And if it's way out, it, that might be one to stay, say no to. And that's a really good way to answer this question of like, what is our culture? It's to, to invert it and say, well, what isn't our culture? What behaviors, if, if I observe them, does that mean they're not aligned? And then what type of business, what type of veterinary clinic? Do I not want to acquire? What does that business look like? And then walk through that. And now identifying that business ahead of acquisition is tough because you're at an informational disadvantage, right? The vendor, the person that's selling the business has more information about the business than the acquirer. But there are perfectly reasonable things that you can do to assess your culture. And this is why you should think deeply internally about this as well, because the things that you are benchmarking culturally well, you want to approximate those in your pre-acquisition non-financial due diligence. So if you care about your staff turnover, right, you're saying it's roughly 20% in the, in the veterinary field. That means the average member of the team stays for five years. So if team is important to you, high staff turnover is probably a negative signal, you know, probably in, in most cases. So that's one thing on your balance scorecard, on your due diligence balance scorecard is, okay, they have higher churn in our benchmark than in our existing business. Or if you're just starting out on this acquisition journey, then where we would like to peg it in the industry. Those sorts of things are super valuable. Ask them, appraisals are a real key way of communicating culture to a team because it's telling them what behaviors do we encourage and reward. What behaviors do we discourage and, and not reward? And so if you ask them, you know, what's your appraisal process? And they shrug their shoulders and they say, hey, what appraisal process? Well, that communicates something culturally, right? It might just be it's never occurred to them. It's, uh, none of these things are like an immediate red flag, just back off. But they all feed into this balanced scorecard. I feel like I could take up the whole hour talking through these things. But you get the idea. It's important to do it pre. But then when you have the business, 
Yeah, it doesn't stop there. Now you've got to, as quickly as possible, fill the information gap. That informational disadvantage that you were at before you owned the business, it should stop existing as quickly as possible. And in acquisitions in general, it's largely that you discover downside, especially early on, you discover downside. The surprises are usually negative. If there's something really positive, the vendor's probably been shouting about it beforehand, right? So you want to confront these negatives really early. And that's hard, especially when you've been pushed to justify your investment thesis, your reason for acquisition. You've got to just say, no, okay, there's a new reality now, clean slate it. And look, what is the reality on the ground? And you could find that there's you do the one-to-ones with each member of the acquired team and you find that there's some toxic elements here. Well, confronting those as early as possible, you now have a duty of care to this team. So confronting those as early as possible is, is key, I think. Fantastic. And we have a comment from Julie and I like that comment. It's a culture also needs to be brave in addressing what they do not want. So using that comment and uh, what you said, Tom, actually just one more thing came to mind is the more you do upfront, the more important it is for selecting. I love your concept about the uh, balance scorecard or, or on acquisition or acquisition scorecard. It would be interesting to maybe expand on that a little later. Again, in that acquisition course that I just took, uh, the professor was talking about, it's very rare that you find nice surprises after you buy a house it's always something bad it's not like oh my god there's another room here or you know the basement is finished we didn't know that <laughs> so it's always something leaky roof or something like that so uh, bob with your experience in the short three years you guys assimilated close to 50 practices and with what tom was articulating about this sort of a filter i would call it strategic filter in your experience, do you guys uh, filter out the practices? Because it's so compelling to acquire the practice with a you know nice fit of the EBITDA that you were looking for, the revenue that you were looking for, the mix of doctors, the location. Is there a filter that you put on and understand the culture or the degree of burnout that you, you'll make a choice not buying the practice? Yeah. And Tom describes it really well. And, and it is difficult pre-integration. You can't know everything, no matter how hard you, you listen and dig. And you have to know your culture and say no. In our experience, probably the biggest predictor of culture is really getting to know the seller. That practice owner built that team, has assembled those clients, knows that community. So spending as much time as you can listening to the seller. In our case, we talk to the seller a lot about what's your dream sheet? What does success look like for you should you join our, our group practice six months from now, a year from now? Do you want to take a month off and bicycle through Europe? Do you want to go from six days a week to four days a week? Do you want a new ultrasound machine? Do you want better benefits for your team? What, what does that look like? And as you really listen to the seller, you get a good indication of what kind of culture they have and does that align with yours? And you have to be willing to say no if it doesn't align. Further, and this really has surprised me the last three years, as a relatively young, smaller group of practices, there's a lot of big players out there in the space that are after practice as well, many of which have bigger checkbooks than we do. And ironically, we found we, we often get outbid. And it's not unusual that we will come in 10, 50, 100,000 or more less than the bigger players, but the practice owner still elects to join our practice. That's a tremendous indication that they believe in us, we believe in them, there's a real fit there. And kind of back to a point you made early on, Ivan, about triggers, one being promises. You think about this profession and part of the beauty of it is we're so small. Here in the US, 
there are more attorneys in the District of Columbia than there are veterinarians in the entire United States. If we go out and break promises, that says a lot of things, most of which aren't good. Um, but if we were to go out and break promises and not live up to, to what we say, not be transparent, not listen to sellers, that would bite us. It just gets around. It's too small a neighborhood we live in. You've got to uphold your promises. Can I just pick up on something you said there, Bob? I like this idea of delegating the pre-acquisition due diligence to the vendor in a way. And this is something that I think people often don't get right. You should be losing deals. If you're doing that effectively, you should be having deals where the vendor opts to go elsewhere. And that means that you've got this self-selection filter. You've delegated some of the due diligence to the vendor and they know that it's not going to be a fit. When, you know, when I'm doing interviews at PetSap, I spend a lot of time trying to persuade people why they wouldn't want to work here. And by the end of it, if they still want to work here, I know this is going to be incredibly successful hire. And I think having the confidence, that's when you really know that you know your culture. It's like having the culture to when you're on that acquisition pathway to say, here's why you might not be a good fit for us. And then walking away from those deals. I think that if, if you can confidently do that, you know you're getting it right. There's too many consolidators out there that the investors or someone behind the scenes, likely at the board level, said you will buy 50 practices this year. And that becomes their mantra. And they're going to hit that number. They're not looking at culture. They're not looking at fit. They're not spending time listening. They have a number to hit. And while I get the investment thesis and you can stack the EBITDA and you can make the rationale on a spreadsheet, it's absolutely the wrong thing to do if it's all about culture. But it's also, I think, that you know, if the investment and the arbitrage is the driver in the organization, it is important to understand if your synergies were based on increasing EBITDA, you know, by a certain percent after acquisition by by optimizing the the margin. If you will have a provider leave the whole provider in the hospital, then your EBITDA tanks with the revenue that that person was bringing in. So ultimately, if you're not preserving it, there's a direct financial impact on that. And um, I know we talked about it in the past, Tom, but you know, one aspect is culture. But then the other one is, are people happy in this practice? There's some practices, there's horrendous stories that I heard that people bought the practices. It was just chaos in there. Are there tools that are available to really assess the sort of happiness in the practice? This prior to acquisition? There definitely are. And just to come back on that last point you made, Ivan, and, and you made Bob, too often when you see a lack of cultural alignment, what people do is they just discount the price that they offer. And that's not good enough. You need to say no and walk away. Because early on in the acquisition path- pathway, it is largely arbitrage driven. And so the distinct competence is, is acquisition, right? So if you buy something, no matter how cheap, that requires you to have this operational competence that you don't yet have to then do a sort of turnaround play, your investors have pressured you into doing something that's really, really going to damage the whole investment thesis because you need to trust that that clinic is going to be on you know, autopilot to some extent until you're ready to layer on the operational bandwidth. But let's say you have made this mistake or whatever it is and you want to get a sense and take a temperature check and all that sort of thing, and, and you should be doing this regardless. One really useful tool as a leading indicator of employee churn, of staff leaving, of team members leaving, is employee net promoter score. It's also called internal net promoter score. And you you might have heard of net promoter score as a customer satisfaction metric. It can be used as an employee satisfaction metric. And you're just asking them, how likely would you be to recommend this clinic as a place of work? And they score you on a scale of zero to 10. If they score you a nine or 10, they're very likely 
to stay. If they score you a seven or an eight, who knows? If they score you a six or left, they're likely to leave. And then you take your net promoter score, you calculate it in the same way as you calculate the normal net promoter score, which is your percentage of promoters, the nines and tens, minus the percentage of detractors. Get ready for that net promoter score to be significantly worse than your customer net promoter score. You know, so benchmark net promoter score is hard to talk about because it depends on collection methodology. But customer net promoter score is normally in the range of 60%. Even in the veterinary sector, it's not unusual to find employee net promoter scores, internal net promoter scores that are negative, unfortunately. We've got a lot of work to do on this stuff. Another thing, if you're not prepared to do something like that, it doesn't take much. So if you're not prepared to do it, why not? Um, Some people find that too impersonal, which I think I can relate to. But just the number of people, whether it's corporate practice or independent practice, that walk in to work one day and are faced by resignations that are a surprise to them. Well, maybe it wouldn't be such a surprise if you just took this temperature check every now and then. As, as personal as our relationships with our team members can be, it's, it's hard to know where the, sort of, where, where the problems are, the things that are brewing. And you want this leading indicator. You, you don't want to leave it till it's too late. But if you don't want to do that, or in addition, in your post-acquisition one-to-ones with each team member, uh, whoever's leading the integration, a really good question to ask. It's super trite, super cliched, but it's useful. Is um, if you were boss for the day, what would you do? You know, if you were running this practice for a day, what would you change? What would you keep the same? What do you love? What do you hate? That that sort of question just tees out the little niggles that really tell you what's going on. That's great, and I think you know I like the angle of these two because one is more. I would call it operational where you get to the detail, what will you change? But the other one is more scalable, which you can deploy across the larger organization and can do it repeatedly because a lot of the times we're talking about the change or the lack of change in, you know, during acquisition, that's been a big, you know, bargain in the last sort of five, 10 years where one of the things that veterinarians like, especially those that want to stay in practice for five or 10 years after the acquisition is that nothing will change. And when you do make a change, it's important to know if people are capable of going through the change. And and I think that the whole concept of if people are unhappy, it is less likely for people to change while they're unhappy. They're not motivated to work there to begin with. Why would they change from their common workflow? So, So I think that's a good temperature check in general between the sort of changes that you apply post acquisition to expand the margin to actually check if you're if your team is capable, maybe they were happy. But then once you implement a new financial system or new PIMS or something else, everybody's pissed off. So it's yeah. not a bad thing to check. Yeah, it is. That. It's really good to do it immediately on day zero, and as close to day zero as you can bear, and then do it. If you've got this 100-day integration plan, which I think is pretty common with your 30-day checkpoints along the way, in your 10 days lesson learned exercise at the end, running another internal net promoter score, employee net promoter score, it makes a lot of sense. That's too frequently to do it on an ongoing basis, but those two sort of sense checks do make sense. It's important to add, there is another question, which is what is the main reason for your score? And giving people that open opportunity to give you give you feedback is important. It's excellent. But back on the topic of change. So is it possible, like a lot of you know BD comes in into these hospitals and says, we're not going to change anything. You don't want to impose uniform, you know, nothing. You just guys do whatever you do. And then is it really possible? And how much transparency you need to bring with that message? Because I mean, if you're coming in and saying that we're going to do everything that you hate to do, all the, you know, accounting and this and that, and then you just practice medicine. So you are changing already something. So how possible it is 
to go with the thesis. We're not going to change anything and actually stay with that. I can start and then Tom can fill in the blanks. I make the analogy, rightly or wrongly, to marriage. In marriage, when you get married, you're still you, but things change. And change is, is always a struggle. Nobody, very few people embrace change. But when you come on to integrate a practice, if you've done your due diligence around culture, often they're looking for change. There's things that they recognize that they could be better at. They're looking for your expertise, for your consultation. And every single one is a little bit unique. While there may be a timeline to, to bring the changes that you want to bring along, you need to take the time again to listen to that team, to learn from them, to find out that hey, in our practice, um, we aspire to get everyone AHA accredited. They may not be ready this month. They may not be ready next month. They know it's out there on the horizon, but I have to be sensitive enough to know what's going on within their practice to recognize when that's achievable and when that's not. So being able to treat each one as a unique integration, I think, is is really important. Yeah, I would agree with with all of that. And it, it depends on your strategy, right? I think it's important not to create a false dichotomy of everything changes or nothing changes, right? Everyone sits somewhere on the spectru- spectrum of that. But for a lot of acquirers, especially in the early days of consolidation in a market, the idea is to leave well alone as much as possible. And that's, again, why the cultural alignment piece is important, because if that's going to be a successful model, you want to be able to know that the the kind of behaviors that are going to be happening when you've not got the bandwidth to be checking are aligned with your strategy and with your mission. But that can only last so long. The idea that you just acquire businesses and by spreading the risk across more accumulation of smaller businesses, that's part of this EBITDA, EBITDA arbitrage thesis, right? But that pays out. And then you, you, the next fund comes in, the next investor comes in, and they need to have an investment thesis. And there needs to be some uplift for them. Well, EBITDA arbitrage has paid out or you know, the, the whatever's left is not going to be enough to justify the investment. So then they need to achieve some synergies. And those synergies are going to be cost reducing or revenue enhancing or some combination of the two, right? And that requires change. So sooner or later, things will change. And I think it's disingenuous to say to the the acquired team that, you know, nothing has changed. Because one thing that has definitely changed, 100% has changed, is the incentives. The incentives of the team have changed. They were working for an owner that they either loved or hated. And maybe there was this opportunity to buy into a partnership at some point. That might not be possible. In in some cases, it might be possible. But the incentives have changed. And incentives also inform culture because incentives drive behaviors. So it's it's super complicated. But I think the, the long and short of it is, yes, you can change more or you can change less. But at some point, the investment rationale will turn to strategic initiatives that need to be implemented. One last thing I will say is, it's a real shame to miss out on that change opportunity. Point of acquisition is an opportunity for change because in your 100-day post-merger integration process, whatever way you look at it, there's this period of ambiguity and there will be some tolerance for that ambiguity. And if you say to people, look, I'm going to close the window on this ambiguity after the 100 days, but in this 100 days, I need you to bear with me as we go through this process, there's an opportunity for change there. And to say we're not going to take that opportunity because our investment thesis is EBITDA arbitrage, for someone like me who's just passionate about running veterinary clinics as well as they can be run, it's a missed opportunity. It just feels a bit boring, to be honest. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And we have a question from Melissa, and I kind of have 
maybe two sides to it. So the question is, how early in the deal should you tell your employees that you're selling the clinic? And I would split it a little because... So what what I've seen a lot is basically the entire team is told on the day when the papers are signed. There's no communication anymore. It's like, hello, everybody. I just sold you all. (laughs) Maybe there's a better form of that. So two, I think, sort of tiers. One is, you know, when there's still negotiations is that's the first tier of communication, maybe to your closer team, like the associates that work there, how early in the deal consideration or just acquisition consideration, because when, when the seller decided I'm selling the practice, do they need to consult with their associate and management team or practice manager on, you know, this is who we're selecting, this is what we're looking for, and just discuss that. So that's one tier. And then expanding to another circle, the entire team, when is one of the recommended times? So any of you guys, if you want to jump in to answer that. I guess I can start. In my experience, it really rests with the seller, but recognize that the practice owner seller generally only sells one practice in their life. It's not like they're experienced at this. And their worry, of course, is what if I tell the team and then the deal falls apart? Or what if I tell the team and from the acquirer's point of view, they tell the team and the team all leaves. So I think, again, you have to spend time listening and talking with the seller. Uh, In the better cases, the leadership of the team is informed and they're along for the ride and, and perhaps even helping make the decision. When it does kind of time to tell the team, if the seller takes the approach that calls a team meeting and tells everybody, hey, I just sold you to corporate and I'm leaving in six months, well, that's going to be a really difficult integration. If the seller sits the team down and says, I've thought really long and hard about this. I love you guys. You're my work family. I've looked at all the different alternatives, but the time has come for me to make some changes. And I found this great new opportunity with better benefits and career development and your jobs are all safe and how they tee it up how and when they present it to the team is is really critical. But again, you need to be open to listen to the seller and coach them along in this case. Tom, you've done more of these than I. What's been your experience? Yeah, in my experience, what you said, Ivan, and and you said, Bob, is is exactly right, that typically the vendor will tell the team, explicitly tell the team when the deal is done. In general, you know, I believe in candor and transparency. But in terms of telling people the specifics of what deal has been done, Usually, when it's been signed, is the only time you really can know for sure that it's been done, right? There's all kinds of things that can happen along the way. The real test for me is, is it a surprise to the team or not? The, the best teams are prepared for it and are expecting it and can completely understand. You know, oh, yeah, I, you know, I know that there's been health issues in their family and they want to spend more time with their family. And I'm so glad that they're going to be able to realize that through this. It could, you know, that could be one story or, you know, obviously he was he or she was on path to retirement and this makes sense to me. And I was prepared for it. The negative stuff happens when it's a complete shock. And often that shock is combined with sudden upset and expectations so oh i thought i was going to have a chance to buy into the practice and you've got to remember the incentives in veterinary medicine and how these incentives change with consolidation and typically a veterinary professional their early compensation in their career like historically has been below what they would typically expect in for an equally qualified person in another sector but the the benefits have been sort of back loaded instead of front loaded where at some point I'm going to be able to become a partner in this practice if I want to, and that will provide me with a nice sort of income and a retirement opportunity, et cetera. For a lot of associates coming through now, suddenly that story, that narrative has been upset through acquisition. It could be that the vendor was telling their associates that, yeah, you'll be a, you're working your way to partner, 
and suddenly this narrative has changed. And that's, again, to me, indicate a poor cultural indication. And so trying to tease out what are the expectations in the team and trying to honor those those expectations in any deal that is done is a real is part of the art of art of acquisition. And again, it depends how much flexibility there is in the investment model of the acquiring entity. Having that flexibility can get some really good deals done in a way that keeps the team on board. Because vendor retention, as well as team retention post deal, are massive indicators of deal success. I know in the early days of NVA, there were numbers floating around where they were just doing great deals with great vendor retention. You know, this is some time ago when, when I looked at this information, don't know where that stands today, but they have acquired a lot of practices very quickly. And how did they do that? Well, retaining the leader within the business, to me, sounds like a good idea if you are not going to replace that with your own operational bandwidth. You know, Bob, you mentioned something that alarmed me. You know, when people say, I don't want to tell my team because as soon as I tell them, they all will leave. Well, we shouldn't buy that practice because you will tell them and they will all leave. So why wouldn't we want to buy that type of practice? So absolutely, I think that's... But that's where the advice, if the acquirer is giving the vendor advice on when to tell the team, again, that's slightly disingenuous because the incentives are misaligned. It would be in the acquirer's interest to find that out earlier, whereas the vendor, it, not really, right? So I think take any advice with a pinch of salt that you, again, you've got to know where the incentives are aligned and where they're not aligned. And typically when I was doing acquisitions, you just got to be candid about that. You're like, I'm not the best person to advise you on that because frankly, our incentives depart at that process. So take your own advice and, and follow your own opinion. And that's why I agree with Bob that it needs to be led by the vendor on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's also, so you just mentioned something important, Tom, about understanding the buyer. And one of the questions that I had to, again, both of you guys is when the vendor is deciding to the seller deciding to sell what are those attributes that they should be looking for in the buyer we have 47 i think consolidators right now in north america last time i checked and that's all available different multiples different incentives different formulas what is the sort of proper way of assessing the the buyer like what is that path to understanding that well i'll start again and as i talk with sellers there's typically three big things that they're looking at if i chunk it down into a small list. And I need to make sure I line up and I need to address each of these. One is, and they come in different orders, and that tells you a lot about the culture of the practice as well. One is often legacy. I spent 20 years building Main Street Hospital. Are you going to take care of Main Street Hospital? Are you going to scrape my name off the door? What is this going to look like? Two is my work family. I love these people. I'm with them more than I am with my biological family. Do you want them? Are you going to keep them? Are you going to treat them right? What does life look for them post-acquisition? And then third, and sometimes first, is financial. This is my retirement for many folks. What's the deal look like? And some sellers are willing to look the other way on legacy or team if they get the biggest multiple. Others will sacrifice the multiple because they know their team will get treated best. So it's all part of that cultural due diligence to really dig in and find out what is the dream sheet of the seller? What do they really want? Does that line up with the buyer? Yeah, I agree with all of that, Bob. I think you've done a really good job of sort of finding the spokes on the sort of triad. What I would say is, again, this is said with as little cynicism as possible. I think for a lot of deals, it does come down to who's offering me the most. And I think that comes from, that's the one thing I can trust. If, if you tell me you're going to treat the team well, when I no longer own the business, can I hold you to that? And the deal is, can I hold you to that? If you tell me you're going to protect my legacy, 
what does that mean? Does that mean you're just going to maintain the brand? Like, what what is my legacy just a logo? Like, it's it's kind of ethereal and hard to define what I mean by I'm emotionally invested in this business and I don't want you to rip the heart out of this business after you acquire it, right? And it's hard for me once I don't own equity in the business to hold you accountable to that. The one thing I can be sure of is that you transfer that amount of money into my account. And so this is another incentive that consolidators, that acquirers have to be very confident in their culture, right? Because culture is predicting how someone behaves when others aren't looking, right? And that's a reciprocal thing. That's a reciprocal expectation. So it's not just how are the people in the veterinary clinic teams behaving when no one's looking. It's how are people leading this consolidator behaving like what are the standards of behavior there and so one thing i would really really encourage vendors to do is take references if things if the sort of harder to gauge accountability on things matter to you if legacy matters to you hopefully your team matters to you and this really is going to be impactful to the future of your teams they matter to you take references and that's something that's beautiful about the veterinary professions is that people are willing to take coffee with almost anyone, right? That if you ring someone up and you see that they're sold to this consolidator who's layering on the charm to you right now, well, ask them, how did that go? You know, ask a few of them. It's all public. You know when these deals have happened. Just ask them. And Bob was right earlier. He said, in your pre-acquisition due diligence, spending a lot of time with the vendor is super beneficial and finding out how the vendor thinks about their exit and the motivations for exit and how they order those things, that, that tells you a heck of a lot as well. But I think vendors, in the context of a early consolidation, they can be forgiven for prioritizing financial because there's not a lot of other information to go on. One more thing occurs to me, Tom and Ivan, at least here in the U.S., as multiples have continued to go up and up and up, we're seeing more and more joint ventures, that there is some retained equity, that the seller vendor chooses to stay and leave some skin in the game. That I think is a really strong model. We're seeing more and more. Uh, three years ago, it seemed most everybody who I talked to just wanted to cash out. More and more, we're seeing people want to retain a part of the practice, which is a win-win. Then they're still yep. there. They're guarding their team, their legacy. They've still got skin in the game. They're going to benefit from upside downstream. It's a real win. And I really like the movement towards joint ventures. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that kind of leads to, there's one comment and a question about, you have mentioned the balance scorecard, its implementation, the silver bullet of the talents burnout prevention. And one of the things that you just mentioned, the incentivization. So going back to those six triggers of burnout, number one is the lack of control. Well, when you leave the part of equity behind and it's 30, 40% in that joint venture, that's the way to maintain that control and feeling of control with the owner, especially if it's not sort of retiring person who wants to just kind of cash out, but someone who you want them to continue working for five, 10 years, that model completely makes sense. And just to follow on those sort of burnout prevention, the reason why I brought them as an example, because those are classic six burnout triggers that's been out there for 30 years. Working against those and look at your environment and say, are, do people have autonomy? Do we provide them autonomy in their decision-making and how they do medicine? Or do we tell them what medications to use without explanation that this is just what we're, you know, what we're getting from vendor management, but then explain that, you know, but give them autonomy to choose the conflict of values. That's another one. So work against that, align and determine the culture, the values early, and then see if, if align. And if some people are not aligned, maybe they're better off in another, in another setting. 
the work overload, manage that properly. If you're giving new tasks to people, don't add that on top of the lack of capacity. Release this is a big one, Ivan. The workload is a big one because this is where an accidental bait and switch happens for the acquirers that don't plan to create any change. Uh, it's that pitch of you get back to doing what you love, being a vet, uh, looking after the patients, and we'll take care of the admin, the accounting, all that sort of thing. Well, actually, the informational expectations of the acquirer with their investors that they have to report to are much, much higher than your average independent practice owner. Independent practice owner might just check, check the bank balance once a month and see, you know, am I cash positive? Okay, that's fine. Whereas the acquirer, suddenly they might have this massive central accounting team, but they're, they're very hungry for information. And so suddenly the practice is like, let's see your twice daily cashing up procedure, financial reconciliation. I want to see your purchase orders and your invoices. And the team's just like, we never had to do any of this before. And you said you were going to take care of all of it. And I think it's not on purpose. It's not, I can earnestly say it's not done on purpose, but it can be this accidental missetting of expectations. And so I think maybe it's one for the, the consolidators just to, to think about. I think, does that ring a bell? Because again, your reputation catches up with you very quickly and that will damage your investment thesis if these teams are being burnt out by you mismanaging their expectations and increasing workload when you said you would reduce it. Absolutely. The other trigger you mentioned that resonates with me, Ivan, is, is control, the first one. And at least here in the US, I think the early consolidators largely came from the manufacturing world. And in manufacturing, it's very hierarchical. It's very top-down. It's all about line managers. And it's it's building followers at the local units, not leaders, where I believe as, as highly trained healthcare professionals, veterinarians and veterinary teams are brilliant people. They know what to do with just some consulting. They don't need that directive approach. They need a consultive approach. It needs to be very bottom up. It can't be the cookie cutter top down. Corporate said you're going to do this this quarter. That may not make any sense at all to that individual hospital. So there has to be the autonomy. There has to also be accountability that uh, at that local hospital. So really driving doctor and veterinary professional leadership at each unit and making it bottom up in more of a servant style than a, than a directive style, I, I think is enormous. It's much harder to do. It's a whole lot easier to go hire a bunch of middle managers and hand them clipboards and checklists and send them out to tell your hospitals what to do. I believe that's the wrong way to go. And many in our industry, that's the direction they followed. Yeah, I, th I think you're right there, Bob, that there's this upside to consolidation that often gets ignored or unexplored. And I don't much care what your ownership structure is as a veterinary practice. But if you do have you know, this professionalization of practice management, that's one of the, the, the purported upsides of consolidation. Well, then you should be able to provide opportunities for career progression that team members never before thought possible, right? And if, you, if you're not doing that, well, what's the point? It just feels like a bad trade-off. So I think it was the, I could be wrong on this, and I don't want to disparage anyone or, or say anything out of whack with reality, but I think the AVMA not so long ago had to change their sort of charter to say that a non-vet could lead the organization, could be CEO. And the reason that they gave was a lack of depth of veterinary talent to manage an organization of that scale. I can completely sympathize and relate to that. But that's sad. I read that, you know, I, I think, I hope I picked the right organization, but I read that with sadness. And maybe we can fix that if we do recognize the breadth of talent across the veterinary professions and reward that and provide diverse career opportunities. And then we'll retain more people, more talent within the profession. So there is this upside that doesn't get talked about a lot. 
I think that's a really good point, Tom. And with the consolidator community, shame on them if they're not looking for veterinary professionals to step up in a decision maker role because they're out there. But also shame on veterinarians that aren't raising their hand and saying, balance sheets and P&Ls is just arithmetic. I get that. And I can bring you the heart of the profession and a real understanding of how to be more successful. Excellent. There's a curveball here that I wanted to ask you guys. So how do you deal with a doctor who joined a practice to not be in a corporate practice and then it's sold? Um, yeah, happy to speak to that. So not a whole lot you can do about that other than try and unpick why they care so deeply about the ownership structure and do, are there biases there that need addressing, need challenging, and can you address their concerns? Can you allay their concerns? But if you are a consolidator, if you are a large veterinary group or a corporate or whatever word you want to use for it, that's what you are. And if someone doesn't want that, well, fine. You know, as long as independent practices exist that they can work for, that's the breadth of strategy and range of strategies that can work in the marketplace. And the, the marketplace can go to work and they can go and work somewhere else. There's all kinds of reasons why people aren't going to want to work for you. And that's part of this. We actually have an article on our blog on Pets App called Why Wouldn't You Want to Work Here? If you can't answer the question of who wouldn't want to work here, then again, you don't know your culture. And it might just be that this person doesn't want to work there. So let them work where they do want to work. I think it's, it's, uh, that's not meant to sound callous. You know, have a lot of compassion for them and, and try and interrogate the reasoning and make sure they are making the right decision. But if ultimately they're confident that you cannot provide what they want, let them go and do their best work somewhere else. Yeah. And to add on, well said, Tom, it comes down again to listening in that one-on-one -on -one conversation. Hopefully they'll give you the opportunity to sit down and talk with them. What is it they really want? There may be an opportunity for them to have equity within a bigger corporate. There may be an opportunity to put them in a leadership role to really hone their skills so that when they are ready to go buy a practice, they can do it on their own. Maybe you'll even help back them. Maybe they'll go build their own practice. And as the, the consolidator buys it back in five or 10 years, when they're ready to exit, there's There's so many opportunities there. The two passions could align if they'll give you the opportunity to sit down and talk with them. And if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. It's a small profession. Let's shake hands. Let's keep up. Let's see how we can help one another. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the benefits of consolidation as it is, because a lot of people look at it from that angle. And it's like, it's bad. It's not bad. It's, it's professionalizing the industry even more. It's creating opportunities in research and different professional paths. And veterinarians, very commonly, I have a lot of my classmates reach out and say, how did you, how did you stop practicing? And I think it was coincidence and created smart flow. But in the consolidation, there's so many paths that you can take in management and apply your knowledge of the operations of the veterinary practice and then become an operator of consolidation. So there's tons of opportunities that are positive. There's an interesting question here about the burnout. So what if, how should you approach the deal and post-acquisition if the vendor is burned out and doesn't have insight into this and is already causing harm in the practice? I was just going to say, as an acquirer, you have a duty of care to, to the vendor. I, I strongly believe that. And again, that's not sort of me being soft and mushy. That's me being pragmatic about how small this sector is and how important reputation is in the sector, as well as it being the right thing to do. And if you do see someone and they are facing burnout, one thing we know is that burnout can harm decision making and someone's capability to make decisions and how they make those decisions. And so it could be a really vulnerable time for them to be making a decision that is going to be one of the most important decisions in their career. 
So I would say approach with caution and care and sensitivity and be respectful of your duty of care to them. But ultimately, it is their decision. It is their decision to make. And it could be the right thing for them. You know, in the best of faith, it could be the right thing for them to sort of get out of that situation. But then you've got key person risks to factor in again, pragmatically. So do see how that plays through. You've got to protect your own interests and the interests of your existing teams and the team that you're going to assume a duty of care for. So do sort of play it out and think it through. But I think you do have a duty of care to that. That person, when they're making that decision, they're facing such a big decision. It is like someone buying a house for the first time. And I know how vulnerable I felt going through that process. It's like, I know I know that when I buy this, something's going to go wrong. It's the same as the person selling the house, right? It's the same for the vendor and it's their legacy and it's a big deal. And you get to be part of this massive decision that they're making. And so look after them, look after each other. Yeah, not a whole lot to add. I really like Tom's approach that first, what's the right thing for the seller? We have bought practices. We've seen lots of people in those situations. So give them good advice. Again, it's likely the only time in their life they'll do it. And it may well be the best thing for them to do is to sell. However, putting my Wellhaven hat on, that's not a practice I want to buy. If they're burned out, they're leaving, their team may well be damaged. And I'm happy to share that with you. You've got a a saleable asset here. You've got a great practice. You've got decades on this corner. There are practices, there are groups out there that this would be a fine fit for. I don't think it would be a fit for us, but the best thing for you, doctor, might be A, B, or C. In terms of that concept in general of having a duty of care to the vendor, it's another great way to win deals not based on price. A real powerful thing to do is to say to a vendor, you know, I think you've got a year of really good growth ahead of you. And if you came back to me in a year, you'd be a lot better off. And guess what? They'll either insist on selling to you now or they'll come back to you in a year and take that offer from you. Whereas in all likelihood, they might have sold to someone else. Again, I'm just giving people pragmatic reasons to behave well. It does pay off. Makes sense. The other question, we touched a little bit on the integration and um, the integration process that happens right after acquisition. And, you know, I just learned in M&A that that's one of the most important moments because this is when the new team is going to be first time exposed to the organization they're joining. Do you guys know any successful implementation of external teams for change management post-acquisition? Or, you know, there's also CEOs that talk directly to all the teams, or there's integration team that comes in and being very sort of pragmatic, mechanical about it, like, you know, just plugging in the systems, ripping out the PIMs and, you know, inserting new lab, or who should be leading the acquisition, sorry, not the acquisition, but integration process? And is it a good place for an external change management expert? I can just share our experience at Wellhaven, Ivan. So we're relatively small. So our model is we've got half a dozen really strong team members out there across hospitals that are typically practice managers. They're running very successful hospitals. They get our culture, they get day-to-day, they get our systems they understand us, they live our culture. So we just park them inside, we introduce them to the team, to the seller often beforehand. We talk about their role. Their role is listening more than telling. They wanna learn from the practice that's being integrated. There's often great things we can share with our whole group. Part of our philosophy are our communities. So we have about a dozen hospitals in Denver and Minneapolis and Seattle in Portland where we've got groups of hospitals that all lean on one another and share resources. 
So we'll put someone in there that actually lives in that hospital and helps them and is there 24 seven to answer questions, as well as introduce them to the people behind the scenes, the support people. Our support team, again, is relatively small. There's only about 20 of us and we're housed, at least pre-COVID, right above one of our hospitals. And one of the things we require of all of them, you may be a payroll clerk or a CFO, but once a month you put on scrubs and you work in a hospital. So you understand what they need, what their day-to-day is, how important what they do is. You may not touch a pet every day, but you better be helping someone that touches a pet every day. Our challenge, of course, as we grow, can we continue to scale that? I think we can, but uh, Tom, you may have other observations. Yeah, I think um, that approach sounds great. Who is good at change management? Is it, like, that is hard, right? It's one of the hardest things. And there's going to be aspects that you're just not good at yet. So reaching for external help could be the right, could be the right thing to do. You know, if you've got known gaps, if you've done your 10 days lesson learned exercise at the end of your last postmodern integration and you identify things that didn't go well, look around you for expertise that's going to help you with that. The idea that you can outsource the integration, the actual sort of getting your hands dirty work of the integration, that you can say, hey, newly acquired team, this is your advisory company that you're going to report to for 100 days and we'll come in later once it's all calmed down a bit. I think that sounds like a very bad idea. Best practice in these scenarios is to open an integration management office with an open door policy and, like Bob said, be very, very high touch. With the sort of scale of businesses that are involved in and these kinds of acquisitions, sometimes that will be, as things that I see work well, if you can pull it off, if you can do it, is place a vet tech in with that new team that knows what the new policies are, new approaches are. Uh, maybe it's an area manager that was once a vet tech, but get your operations team involved in the process as early as possible. This is also a really good way for those consolidators that are sort of going through the EBITDA arbitrage investment thesis with the M&A as a distinct competence for them to slowly layer up operational bandwidth. And this is a good place to start where, you know, you have an operations team coming in for this 100 day period and then gradually easing off. Well, eventually, when you do need to extract your post-merger synergies, you can sort of leave the some of the operations team in and then ta-da, you're, you're running vet new practices. Because that switch in distinct competence from M&A to clinical operational excellence is challenging. It's super difficult. It's really difficult. And so if you can get ahead on that, if you can get any kind of head start on that, you're onto a good thing, I think. That's where the breakdown happens, sort of the upstream not connected with the downstream. And that's where, you know, if you're buying every practice that has a pulse and then you're just passing it on without understanding what impact it has on the downstream, on the integration team, and then post sort of change management business as usual, if you will, on the operations, that's where the problems will happen. Bob, I love what you said, what you guys do about visiting the clinics. That really comes... So I researched lean in in human healthcare for the last year and a half. The lean has this distinct thing that they have to do. It's one of the practices they do what's called Gemba. So the management team goes once a week. It's in their schedule. The CEO of the San Francisco General Hospital goes downstairs and present during the morning rounds with the entire team. They see what is happening where the work is happening. 
That's excellent. I, I love that. And then the other thing, Tom, you mentioned about, you know, who's good at change management. I think that nobody is, especially external people. They come in, they know their theory. But what I keep talking about, and hopefully it will start happening in the near future, is really promoting the culture of continuous change. What I mean by that is change management, it's like, you know, proper techniques, celebrate early, set the, you know, the change agents and all of that stuff. That's that's important. But if you infuse the culture in the entire organization where the people that do the work have the voice, there's feedback loops, and they can provide information and their opinion on how to run operations of the practice, then that's a continuous learning and continuous improvement culture. When you throw a change into that culture and ask them, how would you solve this problem? Instead of coming in and say, this is what you do next because we told you so, that flips it on the other side. Then the change management is happening because people want to do the change because they came up with this idea. And I think that that's very important. And this is something that I'm pretty sure that without that, consultants can't really push, you know, just arbitrage and let's just push all of these changes very soon. I love that, Ivan. I think the idea of continuous improvement has a very receptive audience across the veterinary professions, right? And this comes back to the idea of the value of veterinary leadership is we're encouraged to develop professionally on an ongoing basis. We're encouraged to take a diagnostic approach to creative problem solving and being solutions orientated. So I, th- I love this idea of embracing continuous change instead of it just being like, all right, we're changed now, all good, <laughs> off, you, off you go. <laughs> I, that doesn't sound like the right thing. And to follow on, I think too often people are looking for that light bulb innovation when in fact it's incremental, it's little changes. And with that comes failure. And not so much an integration, but just as a practice, we try to always be listening. What are the pain points? How can we help? As a result, as we built our de novos, we built an alpha hospital where if we're hearing a pain point and there's a, someone out there that can solve it, let's try it in our alpha hospital, see if it works there. Then we have two other de novo betas. Let's go try it there as well. If it works, great. Let's roll this solution out everywhere, but let's, let's take learnings from the whole practice and share them as we can prove them out. Because with that incremental change, are going to come some stumbles. That's okay. Learn from it and move on. I love that idea, Bob. When I was talking to John, he was talking about sort of the innovation hubs, hub practices. And I think for a rapidly growing group, bringing this new idea of continuous change, laying that on top of sort of post-merger integration and the risks there might be a bit much. I mean, if you can pull that off, fantastic. But for the clinics that have been around a bit longer, I think what the large organizations don't do enough of is this benchmarking behaviors to increase the success that they have with the businesses that they're acquiring. And I think having a sort of innovation hub, having a clinic where you do innovate and you do try stuff, that's like benchmarking taken to the 11th degree. And I think that's fantastic, super exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that goes back to, you know, what is the silver bullet for prevention? The, the community breakdown is the sixth trigger for, for burnout is when you don't have feedback loops. And if in the organization, you can advise something, it's taken seriously at the top management level and say, why don't we put this experiment? and then put it across because none of the consolidators, most of consolidators don't come in with a toolbox of available improvements on their inventory management marketing. They come in with those theses to private equity, but that stays on the investment deck. And then when they start consolidation, they're really fixing a flying plane, developing these processes. So why not to take it into safe environment, develop the process, develop the rollout, develop the training for everybody, and then put it at scale instead of trying it sort of, you know, halfway in most of these hospitals. So I, I really like that. 
I have a question that I want to throw at both of you guys. We're running up on time, but this is sort of with the topic for this webinar was about the how to convert the burnout prevention into profit. So, so do, do you guys really think that investing into burnout prevention is worthwhile or, or into culture assessment? Is it an investment or is it a necessary process that actually is a part of value creation? I, I keep coming back to culture and we need to invest in burnout to enhance profits. It's need, we need to go back to our purpose and our passion. We're here to, to help support veterinary practices, help more pets, help our people. As a result of that, you know, you're hearing from your teams that while our business is booming, people are sometimes breaking. How can we help them? And it's not one or two things. It's, it's the lens through which you look at things. It's, it's how you do things. It's your employee assistance, it's your Cubex, it's AHA, it's local leadership, it's benefits, it's four-day work weeks, it's flexible schedules. It's a hundred things, but it, it comes with how you look at it. If you wake up one day and say, oh my gosh, my P&L has been impacted because of burnout, it's way too late. It's way too late. Definitely. There's this meme that I enjoyed, which was um, poke some fun at a CFO and they, they get a lot of stick. And I've worked with many enlightened CFOs in my time, so I, I don't mean anything by it. But the CFO says, what if we invest in our people and they leave? Uh, to which the CEO retorts, what if we don't invest in them and they stay? That's the problem you're up against, right? And you've got to think what your strategy is. And, and your strategy is not something that you wrote down on a piece of paper or like gave yourself a pat on the back about. It's the decisions that you make and it is your stakeholder prioritization. And usually veterinary clinics are saying, you know, we, we put the pet owner first or we put the patient first, right? Well, guess what? If you want anyone to genuinely put anyone else first, you need to invest in meeting their needs because unless their needs are satisfied, how are they going to prioritize anyone other than themselves? So yeah, it is an ongoing investment and it is something that you just need to live all the time. And you need to just build in these ways, the sense check, hold yourself accountable. That's, that's something really valuable. If you, can, if you can build a culture of reciprocal accountability, you know, this is what I expect of you. And therefore, this is what you can expect of me. And you build in checkpoints to see, are you meeting those expectations and you allow people to hold you accountable? That's the investment you need to make to be good at this stuff, I reckon. I, I love the point Tom makes on prioritization. In, in my mind, and I tend to be visual, it's kind of a flywheel, but the priority starts with people. It's taking care of the people in our practice, our doctors, our nurses, our teams, then they'll take care of pets. If the pets and the pet parents are taken care of, then our practice is going to do fine. Then I can reinvest in the community and nonprofits and shelters and all those things that move my heart, which goes right back to people. But it starts with the people and that gets the flywheel going. If you start down at the bottom of the flywheel and it's I want a good practice P&L and then I try to push that thing, it's really tough. Yeah, no, I love that. And, you know, especially if organization will start implementing that as a strategic filter for initiative that they're taking, because it's one thing to talk about, yes, people first, we love people, then the customers, then the pets and everybody else. But then they say, okay, what do we do to push that margin again? And, you know, 55 initiatives on their quarterly planning have zero those that take care of people. Then again, you're not walking the walk and you're just talking about these things. My favorite question about these things is when the consumer Solidarity say that we're all about people. We're all about people. We're supporting veterinarians. It's all about that. How do you measure that? Show me on your weekly scorecard that you're looking at with your executive team. Where's that number? What is it? 
And that's really a good question to ask yourself when you're an executive team. If you're saying that, how do you measure success in supporting your people? I think that's very important. Just a quick point. Part of the answer to that, I think, Ivan, is a veterinarian trying to prove to the investment community that putting people first is the right way to go. I should be able to point at the P&L and show my growth, my margins. Those things are superior because I invested up in the people. It's not always a straight line, but I ultimately I have to prove it. Yeah, and that's the wonderful thing about this sector is you can do do well by doing good. But I do come back to the, the question when you say we put the people first, which people? You know, there's it's a subset of people that you're putting first. Then you want to select for that subset of people whose needs you know your organization can meet because it's a different people. It's not, you know, vets and vet nurses and uh, customer service representatives are not a homogenous mass of people with the same motivations and same needs. They're distinct, right? And so you're only ever going to be able to create this positive environment for a subset of the population. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I would like to summarize, guys. I, I recorded a couple of things if anybody is reviewing this. So, so we talked about the importance of cultural assessment, pre-acquisition for sure, and post internal NPS score. Tom mentioned about that. That is important to measure immediately after acquisition and then after the assimilation or whatever you call that term after 100 days. And then a good question to ask employees, what will you change if you were a boss? Communication is the key with the team and making sure that you're communicating acquisition early enough and all the benefits of the transition instead of just dropping a bomb I sold you goodbye. Preserving the legacy team and uh, making sure that financial incentives are there when you're picking the consolidator to sell your business to. Taking references from other clinics that already sold to a particular consolidator, it's, it's a good strategy suggested by Bob. And we talked about the change management versus continuous improvement culture. So guys, really appreciate it. It was very insightful. Thank you for joining me in here. Hopefully the listeners liked the webinar. And uh, thank you very much for joining me. Enjoy that. Thank you, Ivan. Thank you so much for listening to Consolidate That. If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at vetintegrations.com.